hello and welcome to our first sermon in this new Christmas series called All Things New. I just want to say I'm really excited you're all here, here this weekend. I just love worshiping with you here and in the chapel and studying God's word together. It's just a joy to do each and every week. So I just thank you so much for being here. If we could sum up this Christmas series with one question, if we could kind of help you get a handle on the main direction that we're headed for the next several weeks, it would be this simple question right here. What difference does Jesus make? What difference does Jesus make? I mean, is all of this really necessary? Coming here each and every week, having this music and instruments playing and having these sound engineers and video people taping the service, singing songs together, sitting in a pew, listening to some guy blabber on for half an hour about a book 2,000 years old, you know, joining a small group, being on a mission team, paying all these people to do this. I know as a pastor, this is dangerous territory to get into, right? But is all of this really necessary? I mean, what difference does Jesus make? What difference does he make in your life with your addictions or your adult children, with your families in your future or your political views in your pocketbooks? What difference does Jesus make? When he enters the picture, how does that impact you? How does that change your world? This different, this question is what is driving the next several weeks where we're headed in this series called All Things New. And as you can see at Crossroads, we believe that Jesus makes a ton of difference. That's why we're studying him. And that's why my sermon is titled A New World. The early 20th century theologian Karl Barth grew up in a culture that seems as if it had abandoned Christianity. Sure, there were some churches, and he even went into the seminary in order to be a preacher, but he lived in the midst of a culture that was very skeptical of traditional Christianity. And so as he got into the pulpit and began preaching week in and week out, his theology that he had acquired over the years, it was not impacting the lives of his congregants. And so in a season of frustration, he seemed as if he had abandoned all of his theology. He just opened up the Bible and began reading in the book of Romans. And he said God opened up for him a strange new world that he had no idea had existed. He began jotting those notes down and on the book of Romans, and those notes turned into a commentary, and that commentary went viral. God used that book of Romans to transform a culture and to open up a brand new world that had been lost for ages past. It was an awakening. Bart describes it this way. As I look back upon my course, I seem to myself as one who, ascending the dark staircase of a church tower and trying to steady himself, reached for the banister, got hold of the bell rope instead. To his horror, he had then to listen to what the great bell had sounded over him and not over him alone. You see, God is in the business of opening up for us brand new worlds and brand new horizons that we had no idea had existed beforehand. And there are three times in my life that I have dug into the scriptures with the question, what difference does Jesus make? And God has opened up for me brand new worlds and brand new horizons that I had no idea were there. So if you would allow me today, I believe God wants to do the same thing for you. I would love to tell you the story of what I'm going to call the three great awakenings through Romans chapter 8. It begins in Romans 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life 
has set you free from the law of sin and death. It begins with the word, therefore. You see, Paul's pointing back to something. He's referencing that something has come before this chapter, specifically the previous seven chapters. Paul has been constructing this well-thought-out argument that is dealing with the problem of sin. He's saying everything's tainted with sin. Whether you're religious or you're irreligious, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then this man named Jesus entered the scene and began making some changes and differences on how to deal with this issue of sin. And then comes this Romans chapter 7, this this story of this person who is stuck in sin and says, the things I know I should do, I, I don't do. And the things I know I shouldn't do, man, I keep on doing those things. The things I hate, I do them over and over and over again. And then comes that word, the word therefore. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It was the seventh grade, and I was at a junior high worship night at my home church in Muskogee, Oklahoma. And if you've ever been at a junior high worship night, it's an experience to say the least, okay? And we, uh, when the music started playing, we would jump up and down and like push each other like mosh pits, and it was a wonderful, holy experience. And, um, but what happened was this, this slow song came on, and I'd heard this song a million times, and, but I'd never really listened to the words. And this night, the words, I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon that cross. Man, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I realized for the first time that I'm, I'm forgiven, I'm set free, that there's no condemnation, no matter my sin, because I'm in Christ Jesus. That it was my sin that put him up on the cross, that when he hung on the cross and took upon himself all of our sin and our guilt and our fear and our shame, and he allowed all of our mess to come upon him and the weight of the world to literally be on his shoulders in this torturous pain, he cried out, it is finished, and did away with our death sentence. So we didn't have to endure it did it by enduring his. I realized that I was no longer guilty. What difference does Jesus make? For the first time in my life, I realized that Jesus died so I wouldn't have to. That I was innocent. That he had prepared a way for me to go to heaven. And what's amazing about that truth is that's not my awakening. That's just the setup The awakening comes in Romans chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For years, Jesus' death meant to me that I got to go to heaven. And what an amazing truth that is. But here's the deal. Ever since that night in seventh grade, I still desired sin. I did. Did you see what that verse said? That phrase in verse 13. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. You see, this comes after Romans 8 verse 1, which says there's no condemnation. So we're wiped clean after we've come up the waters of baptism and accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We're wiped clean. There's no condemnation. But there's still stuff that needs to be done. I couldn't help but wonder, after receiving Jesus as my Lord and Savior, why don't I feel any different? Why do I still desire sin? What difference does Jesus really make? Now, I know some of you, the moment you came out of the waters of baptistry, 
God wiped away a 20-year long addiction to drugs. I know for some of you, the moment you prayed a prayer, God cleansed a sickness or a chronic pain that you had had your whole life. But for me, although I was forgiven and wiped clean and I was no longer guilty but innocent, I still desired sin. I did. I desired to party and to be popular, to lie, to, to tear, down, tear down others with my words, to it, join in on the dirty jokes. I desired to get drunk, to get high, to have sex, to look at pornography, to totally engross myself in sin. And even if I wasn't doing all those things, even if I was controlling some of my behaviors, I knew that deep down inside of me, my heart of hearts desired sin. I couldn't help but wonder, that cancel out my conversion? Was I no longer innocent? Was my baptism for naught? And God began to teach me that sin affects us in two very meaningful ways. The first, it makes us guilty, and second, it makes us sick. I mean, we, we break God's law. We sin and we rebel against God, and now we are guilty and deserve to be punished. But sin also enters into our heart and perverts our desires for evil and causes us to want to be selfish and to make decisions that hurt ourselves and those around us. You see, when we accept Jesus as our Lord and come out of the waters of baptism, we may no longer be guilty, but we're still sick. And Jesus wants to walk alongside of us with his spirit and begin undoing all the effects of sin that it has in our heart. He wants to make and cleanse us of all of that sickness and make us well again. You see, Jesus' death is not just about getting you to heaven. It's also about getting heaven in you. It's also about getting heaven in you. He has not given up on you. If you've been enslaved to an alcohol addiction, God wants to break the chains of bondage. If you've been an on-again, off-again Christian over and over again, and you feel so much shame because you've fallen away yet again, you have not outlasted God's patience. If you're constantly failing as a parent, God, the perfect Father, is working to make you like him. What difference does Jesus make? You see, Jesus is working to open up a brand new world for you to make you both innocent and well again. He doesn't just want to give you a new future. He wants to give you a new present. Not just a new then, but a new now. He desires to make you new. Then came the second great awakening. It's Romans 8, verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we may share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. This is the beginning of my second great awakening. Did you notice all the pronouns in that passage? Look at it again. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. 
as I began reading through the scriptures and asking what difference does Jesus make, God kept on showing to me these passages that had this idea of a plural, that it's not just about me, there's a group of people God's doing something with. And then came Mark chapter 1. Now remember, this passage is before Jesus' death and resurrection. Look at what it says here. Verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news, or literally the Greek word euangelion, the gospel of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the gospel, the good news. Now here's my question. I couldn't help but wonder, like, okay, Jesus is preaching the gospel, the good news of God, before he died and rose again. So what's the gospel if it isn't the death and resurrection of Jesus? Look at verse 15. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. You see, Jesus has come to establish a kingdom on earth. There's not a more dominant theme in the preaching and teaching of Jesus than the kingdom of God. It's used 49 times in the gospel of Matthew alone. The key to understanding this is looking at the big story of the Bible. Okay, you ready? Here we go. God created the world in Genesis 1. It was good. He dwelled with Adam and Eve in the garden. It was a perfect utopia. Sin entered the world. They rebelled. He cast them out of the garden, but not without a plan. In Genesis 12, the plan is that God calls this guy named Abraham. He says, follow me, and I will bless all nations through you and your descendants. Abraham did. He had some kids. They had some kids, which formed the nation of Israel, made up of 12 tribes, representing the 12 sons of the descendants of Abraham. This nation of Israel went down to Egypt into slavery, were released, right? They, they were rescued. They went through a water tunnel, right, to go into the promised land and establish a kingdom. And they had these kings, and they became this massive kingdom. And then this idiotic king made some decisions which made the kingdom split in two. And the Assyrians and Babylonians came and conquered the kingdom of God took them into exile, and when we come around to the first century, finally, some of these Israelites have made their way back to the promised land, and they're trying to rebuild this kingdom, and it's kind of a messed up deal. They're being oppressed by the Romans, and then comes Jesus, who says, the time has come, the kingdom of God is here. And he calls 12 disciples to follow him. You see the similarity. Jesus is establishing a kingdom on earth. He's establishing a group of people who are living under his kingship, who are carrying out his will. He's blessing the nations through people who are living out his will, of liberating those in bondage and proclaiming good news to the poor, who are letting all the nations know that there is salvation offered through the death and resurrection of Jesus. You see, the death and resurrection of Jesus is the most important part of the kingdom, but It's only a part. There's a larger narrative that's going on where the death and the resurrection serve as the climax. This truth became real to me um, when I was in high school. I went to a Christ in Youth conference. Um, This is just like our students go to Summer in the Sun. We were at a Christ in Youth conference, and a professor from Ozark named Mark Moore got up and preached a sermon for the theme that week was on the kingdom. And his sermon topic was being citizens of God's kingdom. And he kept saying over and over again, that's why I love the church. That was kind of his refrain throughout his sermon. And he would tell a story of how the church was kind of messed up, and he would say, that's why I love the church. It was kind of funny. 
But the purpose of his message was over and over again emphasizing this. You are citizens of God's kingdom first. It's demanding your total allegiance, your total priorities have to be to that, number one. He said, Philippians 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Mark said, let me tell you a story about some citizens of God's kingdom in India. A guy by the name of Ajay Lal. Now this was 10 years ago, I was sitting at this conference, and he talked about Ajay Lal, a guy that we support as a church in India with the nine missionaries in the Lucknow region. And Mark said, here's the story. There's a man named Mahipa. Mahipa was a, his job was to kill Christians. He was a persecutor of the church. And Mahipa's wife, who we love very dearly, got sick. And at the door one day, a man knocked and Mahipa opened the door. It was one of Ajay Law's preachers, one of his evangelists. And this preacher said to Mahipa, your wife is sick because you're persecuting Christians. If you stop persecuting Christians, she'll live. If you don't, she'll die. Well, it's pretty bold on behalf of that preacher guy. But uh, anyway, the story goes that Mahipa looked at him and said, if I see you again, I will kill you and slam the door. A week later, Mahipa's wife got even more ill. Another knock appeared at the door. He opened the door, same man, same story. Your wife is even more sick because you're persecuting Christians. If you, if you stop, she'll live. If you don't, she'll die. Mahipa said, if I see you again, I'll kill you. And he slammed the door. One week later, his wife was on the verge of death. Heard a knock on the door. He opened the door as the same man. So finally, Mahipa said, okay, God, I'm, I, I will stop persecuting Christians. Show me you're real. If I stop persecuting Christians, you've got to save my wife. In the weeks that followed, his wife got better and better until she was restored to full health. Mahibal then quit his job of persecuting Christians and got hired at another place where he began planting churches as an evangelist. Yeah, you can clap. At that point in the sermon, Mark looked at all of us high school students and he said, God is calling you all to be citizens like Mahipal and Ajay Law in advancing God's kingdom on earth. He's calling some of you to be generals and some of you to lead wherever you're at. The rest of the story goes that Mahipal had a dozens of believers one time convert to the faith. And so he took them to Ajay Law and he told Ajay, he said, I'm going to baptize baptize these people in the public, in the river, by the village. And Ajay Law, who was a stud in the faith, he said to Mahipal, that's not a good idea because that that river is considered a god to the Hindus of the area. And if you baptize them there, they will beat you and persecute you. And Mahipal said, we welcome persecution We are not ashamed of the gospel. We will bleed in order to testify for our faith. And at that moment, I knew God was calling me to full-time vocational ministry. I knew God was calling me to stand up and be a citizen of God's kingdom and to give up everything else. And you see, this story is more than just becoming a preacher or a church planner. This is about every single one of us saying, God's kingdom his first allegiance, his kingdom, being a citizen of that kingdom is first priority over everything else. 
You see, God is establishing a kingdom on earth through a group of people who are saying his reign, his rule, his advancement is first priority. What difference does Jesus make? You see, this is the truth that this kingdom concept tells us, is that Jesus doesn't just want to get you to heaven. He wants to get heaven in his people. You see, it's not just about individual salvation. It's bigger than that. It includes that. It's, that's part of the story, but it's bigger than that. God wants to save all of you in order to establish his kingdom on earth. Even when the church isn't being the church, he has not given up on us. Even when the church isn't being the church, God works through broken people. Even when the church veers off course theologically or gets focused on the wrong things like the color of the carpet or the dress code on Sunday morning, God will still draw all men to himself through the church. Even when the church has hurt you or failed you, God will use forgiveness and mercy and reconciliation to advance his kingdom through the church. My professor at Ozark, Mark Scott, used to always say, God can hit a straight lick with a crooked stick. And that's same true with the church. What difference does Jesus make? Jesus is establishing a kingdom that is countercultural to the world around us. He's uniting people across the globe with the same mission of proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. He desires to make you new, and he desires to make us new. Then came my third great awakening. Romans 8, verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. When I read this, man, it woke me up like an alarm clock. Look at what it says over and over and over again. For it's the creation that waits in eager expectation. Verse 20, it says it again. For the creation was subjected to frustration. In verse 21, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. See, God is not content with just reversing one aspect of the sin in the garden. God's not content with just rescuing humans from eternal separation from him. God wants his entire world. He wants the globe. He wants his creation back, his garden back, his paradise back. That's why we begin the story of the gospel with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we end in Revelation 21, verse 5. It says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. We don't get done with earth. We don't get rid of the earth. There's a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Then look at this beautiful picture In chapter 22, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. It's a garden, looks like in a city. Go ahead and go to verse 3. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops. You see 12, kingdom of God. 
of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. You see, we begin in a garden and we end in a garden. We begin the garden after all this scripture, after 66 books of wars and, and slavery and rescues, of famine and plagues and exiles, of incarnations and babies and mangers and, and miracles and teachings and deaths and resurrection, we end back in a garden with the new heaven and the new earth uniting together in a perfect harmony for forever and forever. What difference does Jesus make? You see, Jesus enters into the midst of this fallen world that's headed to its destruction, and he starts something new. That's why you have the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1, start with, in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. That's the first creation in Genesis 1. And then look at this. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, Eugene Peterson says, and moved into our neighborhood. In Genesis 1, God spoke billions of galaxies into existence. And then in John chapter 1, Jesus, the word, spoke a new world into existence. You see... Jesus doesn't just want to get you to heaven. He wants to get heaven on earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's not given up on this world. Even though there are 30 million slaves around the world today, just in the last few years there have been a thousand slaves freed from tomato farms in the state of Florida even though there are, there are families in our community that can't provide Christmas for their kids, there's a kingdom of God that's providing an affordable Christmas to give parents dignity and kids Christmas. And even though there are 6,900 people groups around the world who have never even heard the good news of the kingdom of God, there are families from this church and around the other world that are going into the most darkest places, the darkest corners of this earth with the good news of the kingdom. You see, Jesus makes a ton of difference. When Jesus enters the picture, nothing remains the same. What difference does Jesus make? As I have experienced this world and when I've been reading the scriptures and every time I've asked that question, he's revealed that truth. When Jesus enters the picture, nothing remains the same. I mean, when Jesus enters the picture, the poor are giving dignity and hope. When Jesus enters the picture, the environment is cared for. When Jesus enters the picture, cultures are transformed and governments are made new. When Jesus enters the picture, addictions are broken and families are restored. When Jesus enters the picture, people are given new beginnings and new lives and new hearts. When Jesus enters the picture, nothing remains the same. So what difference does Jesus make? Well, this sermon series, and we at Crossroads believe he makes all things new. He makes all the difference, if we'll just let him. So I'm going to have the band come back up here. We're going to sing one final song today. But I don't know 
where you are at this morning. I don't know if you're looking around this world and, and you are discouraged by the news every evening and how this world seems like it's headed to its destruction. Maybe you need to talk to someone about the new world that Jesus has started through his church. Maybe the church has failed you or let you down or hurt you. There's a lot of bitterness and rage and anger there. Perhaps you need to talk to someone about what being a part of God's kingdom looks like. And perhaps your life is in that BC area before Christ. And you've been on again, off again with the church or you've been living in sin or you still desire sin even if you're not necessarily doing it. Perhaps you need a new beginning. Well, the rest of this sermon series is all about that. Don't miss the next four weeks. Let's pray. Lord, the story of the gospel is just amazing to us. It leaves us in awe and wonder. It leaves us amazed and in a fearful reverence of who you are and what you've done and what you're doing in this world. And Father, we desire to to be a part of this new world you're creating. We desire to be part of your kingdom, to be made new again. And so Father, we, we offer ourselves to you this morning, Father. Make us new. Give us a new world. In your holy name, amen.